Welcome everyone to today's RAIN podcast uh, on disaster preparedness. Today we're joined by two uh, experts from the RAIN network uh, and we'll be turning it over in just a minute to our moderator, David Lawrence, the founder of RAIN. Brief introduction for our panelists today. We have with us Dr. Owen Redlener. Uh, he's the director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute which works to understand and improve the nation's capacity to prepare for, respond to, and recover from disasters. He's also the author of Americans at Risk, Why We Are Not Prepared for Mega Disasters and What We Can Do Now. Also joining us is Jeff Schlegelmich, who is also at the National Center for Disaster Preparedness, and he's the deputy director there. Welcome, everyone, and I'm going to turn it over to Rain's founder, David Lawrence. David, off with you. Welcome, Erwin, Jeff, uh, thanks for this opportunity to be up here at Columbia. Uh, let me sort of begin by um, retracing a little bit of your personal histories in terms of how you got to uh, the center and uh, the nature of your involvement. Erwin, obviously you started as a pediatrician. Right. And if you can uh, just familiarize the audience with uh, your background and sort of how you got to this point. So when I first started getting interested in disasters, uh, it was back in the mid-1970s, I was actually the director of a pediatric intensive care unit in Florida, Jackson Memorial Hospital, but um, a massive earthquake had occurred in Guatemala in 1976, and uh, I rounded up two uh, medical teams that we brought to uh, Guatemala to uh, work on this uh, devastating uh, disaster, and uh, uh, that was really the first uh, time I had an opportunity to participate in a, in a major uh, initiative to help people who had been uh, victims of this uh, terrible natural disaster. And I even then uh, noticed lots of issues that uh, had come up that seemed to me uh, could be and should be done better than that. And uh, over the years, I've responded to a number of different disasters, but around 9-11, uh, I put two uh, mobile medical clinics, pediatric clinics at ground zero to uh, help do triage for the workers and uh, people that were in the building. And uh, that led to the establishment of a pediatric disaster uh, program. And uh, it was at a time when I was the president of a new children's hospital at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. But long story short is that led to my being recruited by Columbia in 2003 to establish the National Center for Disaster Preparedness. So that's, uh, that's the short history of how I got involved in this. But the deeper I've gotten involved, the more concerned I've gotten that uh, we're just not quite appreciating the lessons learned from previous uh, disasters that we've been involved in. And the country, this particular moment in time, is very far away from being as resilient and uh, ready for disasters as, as we could be. And it's one of the reasons that uh, Jeff and I and our staff at the National Center uh, continue to explore how we could do a better job of understanding lessons learned from the past and what we need to do to go forward and improve. So let's unpack the uh, term um, disaster and preparedness because I know, Erwin, um, you and Jeff have been focused on a wide spectrum of past events as well as some concerns about what may happen. Uh, some of these issues involve what I'll refer to the natural disasters of earthquakes. I know you've been very active responding to Hurricane Katrina, most recently the storms in Baton Rouge, even the uh, tragic water issues in Flint, Michigan. And as I've come to know you, you 
I've been very focused on uh, the things that just naturally occur, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, etc., but also the man-made risks and uh, the ways that we respond that sometimes compound the consequences of these issues. Uh, so ranging from terrorism, terrorism to potential biohazards and bioweaponry to cybersecurity, et cetera. Uh, talk to us a little bit about um, the mission of the center and um, how it is that you are attempting to thread the past lessons and most importantly thread them into solutions of, in terms of how we can be uh, more adequately prepared and how we can be more thoughtful. I think, uh, and that's just a great way of putting it, that so much of what we do at the center is at that intersection of research, policy, and practice. And, and how, do we, how do we make sure that we infuse the research and the evidence base into uh, contemporary policy? How do we make it relevant to what's going on today and the way that people are responding? And how can we, how can we influence that response with the best information that's available? And so in some cases, we you know, will conduct primary research on this and send teams out and do surveys and then put that out in white papers and congressional briefings and, and uh, work with media to, to help better inform some of their stories and coverage. In other cases, we apply the research of other groups that are out there doing it. Um, and uh, another avenue we look at a lot is where there maybe isn't a sufficient evidence base. Um, so to give just a very kind of generic example, the, um, there's not a lot of data out there on how, what dosage of antibiotics an infant would require exposed to uh, weaponized inhalational anthrax. Thankfully, there's just not a lot of data. There's not really any cases out there. But in order to formulate policy and the subsequent operational planning for that, uh, we need to come up with something, with some kind of guidance. And so we'll do these processes of consensus conferences where we get the experts in a room, where we talk through what the science tells us, what it doesn't tell us, and come up with interim recommendations that are as informed as they can be and as smart as they can be as the, the, the science works to catch up. Um, but ultimately, always working towards uh, that being relevant and, and being able to have an impact uh, in the near term as well as the long term. You know, one of the things I think is really interesting about this field is I think the general public would assume that uh, because we had a disaster and we observed what went on and how we responded, that we would take the lessons that are learned. You know, we have the experience, those experiences yield lessons, and then the lessons get recorded. And after every major disaster, there's all kinds of after-action reports and uh, analyses of what went on and what went right, what went wrong, you would think that the lessons that were learned in the disaster, the last one, would be applied to the next one. Unfortunately, that turns out not to be true. In fact, that 1976 earthquake in Guatemala yielded a U.S. government report on the U.S.'s role in the response to that disaster. That report listed conclusions and recommendations, and none of those recommendations were basically uh, adopted by anybody so that when we saw the hor horrific uh, situation in, uh, with Hurricane Katrina, the uh, horrible earthquake and, and damage from the earthquake in, um, in Haiti, uh, we see lessons really not learned. Now, these are big dramatic events, um, and some people will call them, you know, uh, you know wake-up calls. Uh, we viewed them more as snooze alarms, which meaning that uh, you know we get aroused, we notice what's going on. Where there's reporters standing in hip boots in the floods, but um, we don't really do a good job of uh, of paying attention beyond the initial drama of the of the initial crisis, and then we sort of drift back off into complacency. 
Uh, and that is something that we really need to reverse. And, uh, and there's many, many lessons. One of them, by the way, has to do with the, the constant refrain of we've got to get the private sector more involved, which seems never to happen. And uh, we see sort of random acts of response from the uh, private sector uh, that turned out to be really great, like we saw around Hurricane Katrina, including and also Superstorm Sandy. Uh, but we still don't have a way of formally integrating the private sector into the practices that lead to a better uh, response for, in a major disaster or recovery. So I could go through a litany of situations that we should be knowing better and doing better, but we're still not. And this is one of the things that our center, which is more or less like an academic think tank uh, with very practical outcomes. This is one of the things that we really do concentrate on. So Erwin, let me just take your words a little bit and uh, play with them. Uh, I would posit to you that it's less that the lessons have been learned. I think they have been learned. They have yet to be applied. That's exactly right. And I, that, you're, that is the way we actually talk about it in that way. But um, So it's an experience. The experience is, reveals lessons. Uh, the lessons do get learned, or they at least get recorded, but we don't seem to apply them uh, when we're getting ready for the next events. It's absolutely true. All right, so let's let's speak about perhaps uh, the reasons why that exists, uh, because I will focus on 9/11 and uh, a terrific report that came out of by the commission, uh, which people scooped up. They waited online to grab it for $10 at bestseller. Who could best believe it? Right. <laughs> and it was written in a way that would try to draw people in to yeah. understand the nature. And there were, uh, it was bipartisan. Uh, it did not attract any controversy in terms of their conclusions. Right. It was embraced as a very important document and had a series of recommendations in the back, uh, most of which have not been enacted. Right. And so the question here is, um, we have a body of knowledge. We have honest brokers. Jeffrey, we have the conferences that you host where there is a violent agreement uh, about sort of lessons learned and what needs to be done. Yet, as you say, Erwin, we go from crisis to crisis, wake-up call to wake-up call, and, it's, and nothing seems to occur. And so is this a matter of human nature? Is it a matter of leadership? Is it a matter of that you need a crisis before people focus and maybe a very, very significant crisis before they will have the attention span to actually change behavior and change responses? Well, we've had the crises. We've had plenty of big crises that should have been the impetus to kind of develop uh, an ability to capture and apply the lessons that are learned in the previous disasters. And there are many, many problems, and Jeff and I can both weigh in on this, but let me start by saying that uh, one of the issues is that in order to get better, you have to have guidelines and rules and funding and a, a number of things that uh, become very difficult. They have uh, legislative implications, and they have budget implications. So if you're a sitting member of Congress, and your term is you're in the House and it's two years, you're worried about next year's budget. And basically what a lot of politicians do is hope that the, the next horrific disaster does not occur on their watch so that the amount of money that actually needs to be spent 
on uh, getting ready for disasters and being able to respond and recover effectively is just never, never really materializes. In fact, Jeff and I have been documenting a significant diminution of funding, for example, for the hospital preparedness programs and for the public health agencies that need to do uh, preparedness and response planning. So we're actually going backwards. Um, and part of it is also it's very difficult for elected officials to find the time to prioritize these issues given the other challenges they're facing. It's like with a hospital. I'm saying to you that the hospital preparedness funding has dropped by at least 50% in the last 12 years from what it was. It wasn't great to begin with. But if you ask a hospital CEO, what are your top 10 priorities, being prepared for major disasters will not appear on that list. So there's no real um, constituency that's pushing for better structure and better uh, uh, funding uh, allocations. And the other problem is that the actual responsibility for disaster preparedness is scattered among dozens and dozens and dozens of congressional subcommittees and committees and many, many different agencies. And those agencies do not coordinate well on any level of government. So we have the federal and state and local levels of government, and there are horizontal uh, problems in terms of relating to even agencies on whatever level that is, and then massive problems in terms of relationships between the, uh, the feds and the states, for example. So we have bureaucratic issues, we have funding issues, <clears throat> and the final thing is we live in a federalist society. That means that the federal government cannot order the states to do something uh, unless there's a really a national emergency. They can recommend, they can try to incentivize, but they really, the responsibilities lie in the states, and in places like New York City and Los Angeles, Chicago, it lies in the cities. So we have big structural problems as well as funding problems that have been some of the barriers that are most important. So let me, uh, with Jeff, with you and Erwin, let's talk about how you would prioritize the issues uh, nationally in terms of what we need to do, how we need to prepare. And let's just assume that uh, for the sake of this conversation, uh, you have the budget. What are you worried about? What are you thinking about? And as you think about the, this as a matter of national security, but also as a matter of local and community safety and security, uh, what are the issues? Some of the scenarios, specifically. Yeah, the scenario issues, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there are a lot of threats that are emerging um, that we're either just starting to think about or that we aren't really fully thinking about where the past doesn't give us good guidance on the future. So being based at the Earth Institute here at Columbia University, we obviously have access to a lot of great climate scientists and looking at climate change and one of the things that looking at predicting future extreme events. Uh, and it's very difficult because most models of the future are based on data from the past, but if future weather trends are playing by different rules because the median temperatures are shifting and things like that, um, the forecast models don't work as well. So it, it's very difficult to predict. Uh, the pervasiveness of technology throughout every aspect of our society has made cybersecurity, I think, one of the top issues. Um, and maybe that's an example that's getting a lot of attention. I'm not sure that it's getting a lot of quality action coordinated across all of the different sectors of government. I think you do find, uh, I, I hate to use the term silo, but uh, silos that are sort of focused on government and the intelligence community and then uh, focused on, on 
even within the private sector, the organizations themselves that are responsible for developing the software and the, those users of the software um, and state sponsors of cyber terrorism versus malicious actors and organized crime. Um, but then uh, with Flint, Michigan, looking at infrastructure, and again, how we've always had infrastructure that we could rely on and hadn't really thought of it as the source of a disaster that could render cities virtually unlivable by contaminating the water supply, by, um, you know, by, by, you know, there are significant vulnerabilities in our power grid. So these are just kind of a few examples on where we really can't trust uh, looking backwards at the last hundred years to predict the next hundred years and really looking at what are those emerging trends now. So, Erwin, I'm reminded one of the conclusions in the 9-11 report was that it was uh, less a uh, failure of intelligence than one of imagination. Right. So, you know, I've been uh, half facetiously advocating for literally science fiction writers to join the, the uh, planning committees in thinking about what we could be facing because many of the people that work in government are not hired because of great imaginations and they may be very competent uh, bureaucrats and scientists and, and technocrats but um, but you know you really do have to think about what would happen if the majority of the electrical grid system in the United States was put out uh, either by a natural act having a uh, like a solar storm for example that puts out a tremendous amount of electromagnetic pulse or EMP that puts out uh, uh, power grids uh, all over the world or a malicious act by an enemy or a terrorist group that uh, wants to do great damage to us and we know this and we know the cyber vulnerability of the power grids for example and uh, you know if if I were in the king here, I would uh, have made sure, you know, five years ago that we are uh, able to protect the entire electrical grid system in the United States. That's doable. It's a little costly, but compared to the cost of not doing it and having the grids go out, you know, it's it's a drop in the bucket. So <clears throat> there are those things. And I, I, we're seeing a little bit more about the bio threats that the country and the world faces that we, you know, have talked about and not really done enough on, but, you know, this includes things uh, as diverse as a pandemic like we had in 1918 with the uh, Spanish flu, the the avian flu that we talked about in the mid-2000s, and, uh, and all of those we've talked about and met, have meetings about, but in fact end up not really getting ready for even those things that we have talked about in depth. The final thing I'd say about the biology uh, issues are the superbugs. So the tremendous overuse of antibiotics in the world, and especially in, in the developed world, uh, has caused great consternation about the development of, of germs that could spread very rapidly, be very lethal, have literally no treatment. Uh, so we're sitting on the doorstep of some very serious looming issues that uh, would be major disasters for us. and. Uh, uh, we be, need to be paying more attention, not to mention the nuclear uh, dangers, which we're now facing um, as the world becomes more, and surprisingly to me, uh, more uh, focused on building up nuclear arms um, and uh, more worried about rogue states like North Korea, but also more nuclear buildup by Russia, China, and the United States. And, and I would just add, too, with the term imagination, personally, I, I would replace failure of imagination with failure to have an open mind. Because I think with 9-11 specifically out of that report, 
um, the signs were there. They were just buried in a lot of noise. It wasn't something that could have never been imagined. It was something that the data presented itself through the Phoenix memo that, you know, people wanted to fly planes but never bothered to learn how to land, and that was never sort of taken seriously based on an old model of how terrorism worked. And similar to superbugs and cybersecurity, that um, I don't think we have to uh, conjure things out of the ethos, but we have to have an open mind to that new data may represent a new trend and a new direction that things are being pulled in, because I think with each of these there have been harbingers that have gotten buried and ignored for one reason or another. So uh, let me build on that. So a lack of, possibly a lack of imagination uh, or encouragement for people to think creatively. Mm -hmm. But the people who ultimately make the decisions and allocate budgets, they have to be open-minded to the possibilities of what might occur. So let me um, put forward and I'll editorialize uh, one of the reasons uh, why I've enjoyed the relationship with Erwin particularly is uh, he has a an edge to him, and to add, wow, all right, yeah. a bit of an attitude, a bit of an attitude, and I'm going to I'm going to sort of analyze that a little bit, which goes as follows: that when you've been doing something as long as you have, and you've been exposed to things as long as you have, and you see what I'll refer to as pattern recognition, both in terms of incidents repeating themselves, lessons once again being available to be imported, but yet a lack of organized response. Um, as we think about this, um, and you referenced the private sector, which I want to move into in a moment, there is an issue around government accountability to people. Right. This is why government exists, to address the, we'll call it the broad societal issues that individuals cannot tackle. And there is an accountability issue in terms of where taxpayer money goes. Right. And while I understand leadership and, you know, cycles of elections, there is very much, um, as I think about this, um, let's talk about America as a public company that we all invest in mm -hmm. and the types of information that investors are entitled to. Uh, disclosure of risks. Mm-hmm an understanding of where money is being allocated, what's in the pipeline in terms of research and development, what are the conflicts of interest that an enterprise is dealing with. And ultimately, I want to posit to is that isn't there a case to be made here about a government's accountability to its people to be prepared for these things and actually to know who is in charge? Who is going to make these decisions? And Erwin, I heard you on NPR radio, I guess, I don't know, about close to a year or so ago, where you were speaking about the, your concerns around uh, bioterrorism. And you noted, um, we'll call it the stockpiles of important mm -hmm. medicines, and, but the fact that no, there was no way that uh, those things would ever be able to be delivered to the site. Uh, logistically, uh, the plan had yet to be thought through. So let me posit to both of you, and I know this is critical to the mission of the center. Uh, you've seen it. You've heard it. I'm taking away there really is no shortage of expertise or maybe even consensus among the practitioners about what needs to be done. But this may be ultimately a question of accountability. Yeah, it, it's definitely a question of accountability, and that's the least of it. I mean, there's also a question of 
proposing policies and budgetary appropriations that are relevant and proportional to the need. So we have a disconnect between the kinds of scenarios that Jeff and I and others like us are worried about, the scope of the problems, the scale of the problems on the one hand, and on the other hand is the amount of focus and money that's allocated to that on the public side, on the government side. And that disconnect is really uh, very dangerous for us because it leaves us very unprepared. So not only is there not accountability for the money that is spent and what's happening, there's not even accountability to hold elected officials' feet to the fire about, did you actually appropriate enough money and resources and energy to the kind of problem we actually could see happening in the future? And so there's, there's a conceptual lack of accountability and a mismatch between the need uh, and uh, what the decisions are being taken in, in state capitals and in the federal government. Uh, like I said, even, even for the small amounts of money they are putting to certain programs, it's not even the metrics and accountability to help let the public know that their tax dollars were being spent appropriately. Uh, and the consequences and the failures of matching the resources to the scale of the need are going to be devastating for communities uh, when and if these other scenarios materialize. So, Jeff, I think of accountability, as Erwin said, not just simply uh, in terms of where money is being spent, but who's going to lead the effort, yeah. who is in charge, who's responsible. And, uh, you know, I always think of disclosures. Um, what should this country be thinking about, and what is the state of preparedness? And who actually owns the issue? Is it the head of Homeland Security? Yeah, and I, I think that's where it gets really challenging is that, um, you know, they've spent the last decade or so since 9-11 looking sort of tactically how the federal agencies interact with the state agencies, interact with the locals, and have created volumes of doctrine for that. So I think from a more tactical and operational perspective, that needle's moved a little bit. When we're talking about true, like, strategic accountability, I think that's where um, some of the some of the challenges presented by uh, federalism that, that Erwin mentioned a few minutes ago really come to play within just taking the appropriations process and sort of setting the legal framework and the budgetary framework for doing this work uh, beginning in the House of Representatives. You have 435 votes and each one of those votes is not accountable to the nation, they're accountable to their district. And so right off the bat, you have this diffusion of accountability to various stakeholders. And I think because these problems are so pervasive and they're owned by so many different people, at the same time, it diffuses the accountability. So you could always say, I couldn't do my job because they didn't do theirs, and vice versa. And so it really creates barriers to a... So let me, let me give you an example of something that I've thought about a lot. So after 9-11, about two years later, uh, the Congress passed and the President signed a bill to appropriate a half a billion dollars a year for hospital preparedness. There's about 52 or 300 uh, hospitals in the U.S. So you divide that out, it's, you know, it's, you know, you're talking about a very, very small amount. You're talking about hospitals got a $3 billion budget and they're getting, you know, maybe $75 or $80,000 to quote-unquote do preparedness. Um, before that appropriation was made of a half a billion a year, uh, I was with a consensus group of health and hospital professionals 
who said it would take an initial bolus of $5 billion a year, to, uh, $5 billion to get the hospitals up to speed, and then at least a billion dollars a year to sustain it. So there was no initial bolus, and it was appropriated half what it should be. So my question was to Congress, who the hell told you that $500 million is enough money? Where did, you, where did that come from? Well, you need accountability on that level also, David, where you say, you, you determined, you non-experts in this field, that a half a billion would be fine to keep the hospitals uh, ready in, in America. Well, you're wrong. So how did you get to be so wrong, and why aren't you being chastised for that? What happens instead is they, they hold a press conference and do a press release congratulating themselves that they've allocated a half, a half a billion a year as if that was enough, which it isn't. So this is the kind of uh, frustration that uh, people like Jeff and I and others have in trying to understand how to influence the process so that kind of behavior changes. And again, I'm, I'm going to come back to a theme that, as I've gotten to know you, the center, and some of the issues uh, more, I like to say about my career, the good news is I never had to be the smartest person in a room. I just had to know where the rooms were with the smartest people and have access to them is that I, I get this overwhelming sense that we don't lack for knowledge, we don't lack for the expertise, and we don't lack for the commitment among certain people. What has been lacking, again, is, we'll call it the leadership, some of which may be out of the state houses, some may be out of, out of the White House, to say this effort must be organized, it must be organized away from the political process and it must be appropriately funded, and that is owed to the American people. Yeah, I would add to that, too, that there's also a grassroots component to that, to right. hold their leaders accountable. I mean, I think the most powerful market signal comes every two years in the House, every six right. years in the Senate, um, you know, through the election process, is to, to um, give people the tools to really evaluate how, how their leaders are managing this um, so that they can... Um, send those signals and advocate uh, really from the bottom up as well as the top down. Okay. Um, you mentioned grassroots. Um, let me, uh, and then we'll get into the last subject. One of the things I've noted, and I saw it during Sandy, I saw it during 9-11. Um, friends of mine in Oklahoma told me about it when a tragic tornado hit a number of years ago. The number of, we'll call them average American citizens, who will rush to the scene of a disaster to help. And we saw it in Baton Rouge with people just taking whatever boats they yep. had. And the, we'll call it the sense of common purpose and the public good that actually the American people have when tragedy does hit. Can you talk a little bit about what you have experienced? Because I think that that, quite frankly, that is a grassroots effort that, you know, quite frankly, needs to be organized. This is what people do. It's what we do here mm -hmm. in terms of response. It may sure. not be what the people do in Washington, but it is what, what people do in their local communities, and they'll drive 200 or 300 miles, whether they're church groups or volunteers, to try to help people when they see that the government has been less than... So this is what we saw during Katrina which was phenomenal, eye-popping disorganization, confusion, lack of coordination among all the formal agencies, federal, state, local. But we also saw 
extraordinary amounts of heroism by individuals, neighbors helping neighbors, uh, uh, lots of spontaneous efforts to, to rescue people, to save uh, property, rescue pets, everything across the board. And that uh, disparity or dichotomy between what we saw individuals doing, to your point, David, and what structured government was doing was pretty striking then. Um, it's not always so striking, but in every kind of major disaster, heroism comes to the fore. And it's part of, the, part of human nature. It's not just in the U.S., by the way. This happens all over the world when it's a major disaster. We saw it in Syria with certain uh -huh. white brigade. Exactly. And so um, I don't think there's any shortage of individuals who want to do something. But I would say about that, that that energy, the heroism comes at the acute crisis. What we need is people who are going to stand up in between the crises and say, hey, listen, I did what I could do with Katrina, but we can't ever have, we can't let this happen again. They rebuilt the levees that were a major problem for the flooding of New Orleans, but they built them only to withstand a Category 3 hurricane as opposed to a Category 5. Uh, where was the citizens? Where were the citizens? Where was the press say, are you nuts? How could you do this? This is like, they're brand new, they look beautiful, but if we get a Category 4, we're going to be screwed again. One of, the, one of the major problems is that we most definitely see heroism at the time of an acute crisis. And we see this all over the world. But what we don't see is the courage for people to stand up, have the wherewithal to demand better so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. And we also don't want to even remotely suggest that big disasters are handled by individual heroes or even local not-for-profits. We need government to be effective, organized, coordinated, and funded sufficiently to do the planning, to get ready for disasters, and to respond uh, appropriately when the disasters occur. So we need all of it. We need the citizens to be ready, and we need government to be ready. And right now, uh, we have neither of those at the level we expect. Um, and, and I just want to add, too, that this is, uh, this is where really we start looking at transitioning from preparedness into resilience, and this is really at its infancy and in being understood as a topic, but there are a lot of centers we're doing some work, others are doing work out there too, on how to unlock resilience at the community level and support it through government institutions. And where if preparedness is having a kit as like an insurance policy, if something happens, this will help make it not so bad. Resiliency is relationships. It's neighbors helping neighbors. It's the state emergency management, local emergency management, and national government having their backs and coming in and supplementing that. And that comes from things that are, are a little less tangible, like the church picnics and the block parties and the barbecues, in addition to the preparedness efforts. Right. And so I would argue uh, you, the, the intent is there, the spirit is there. People need a place to go. Exactly. To channel this. And uh, we see this, uh, not to open up uh, another can of worms, but whenever there is a, uh, a disaster, uh, the Red Cross makes it very easy to for people to give money and they're they want to help. There is no other mechanism, and yeah, exactly. and that, that occurs. So, building the platforms. All right. As a final topic, um, we are working together um, with uh, the Columbia Center here to build uh, the resiliency roundtable. And Irwin, uh, if you could, um, you know, you and Jeff could just give a quick primer 
into what we hope to accomplish with that because obviously this picks up on some of the themes we've been discussing today and some of the gaps uh, in the marketplace. Well, one of the huge challenges we've faced uh, over the years uh, is the lack of appropriate integration of the private sector into disaster planning and the implementation of response plans and recovery. And this is something that's been given a lot of lip service in government. You know, we want to involve the private sector. At one point, the Department of Homeland Security had an office on private sector involvement, or FEMA does, but, and they probably still do, but they have, you know, there's like 25 million businesses in the United States that had a staff of about 20, theoretically, to manage this. And I'll tell you, to this day, uh, if you go to a uh, tabletop exercise where the government is planning to do uh, response to a major disaster, what we what we don't find are members representing the private community. And the private community actually owns many of the assets that the government needs or the communities need to actually respond. So if you're talking about, for example, the gas shortage that happened during Hurricane uh, Superstorm Sandy up in the Northeast, uh, Governor Cuomo was very concerned that we had a prolonged gas, gas shortage. And he said, how am I going to fix it? And some of us who were helping look at the aftermath so, well, you are not going to fix it. We're going to have to get the private sector. The private sector drills the oil, they refine the oil, they ship the gas, and they sell the gas in the gas station. So it's a private sector operation end-to-end, -end, and if we don't have those uh, businesses and the electrical companies and everybody else at the table during planning, we will never get to a point where we're making, uh, we're recognizing the critical importance, centrality, really, of private sector involvement in uh, in disaster planning and disaster response. So the Resilience Roundtable is an effort to try to uh, talk about, discuss, and promote these ideas of how to do and how to make effective use of private sector assets, which are so critical uh, in making plans that will actually work when we need them. Yeah, and I would just add too that having a having an ongoing dialogue that really involves the private sector in a leadership role to articulate the problems from that perspective, how it integrates with the government systems, um, and really provide resources to create solutions that just aren't coming uh, solely from uh, government verticals, where uh, you know it's being driven by congressional agendas and, and political agendas and. and government and public sector interests, but also originates uh, with resources from the private sector to be able to create solutions that are, are articulated in the value um, the way that it is in the private sector. All right. So, uh, Jeff, as I understand, uh, this effort will not just simply be about raising the issues and uh, what I'll refer to as um, sharing them, but this is about the real-world solutions that are needed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's certainly value in continuing to raise the issues. I think that a lot of people are raising the issues, but, you know, as we started out, our center and I think our personalities of, of all three of us and everyone involved here is action-oriented, and it, it's great to articulate the problem and uh, how can we create solutions to actually move the needle. All right, and I think a, a key component will also be about uh, the ability of um, the roundtable to perhaps hold people accountable and to make sure you know, we actually know our, our state of preparedness or our lack of preparedness. And we also plan, of course, to have uh, some very uh, well-known people come in and speak to uh, the roundtable and uh, opportunities that, that I think we'll be able to uniquely provide to those who are participating. So it should be, I think, very worthwhile. The valid sharing will be uh, extraordinary. In any event, I want to thank Erwin uh, 
and Jeffrey here. It's uh, been terrific. Uh, the center's doing some extraordinarily important work. Uh, we look forward to the collaboration, and we look forward, most importantly, to make a difference. And I know Erwin's heading down to Fox to talk about uh, the Affordable Care Act, and uh, I, I guess to fly into a, uh, another Washington controversy. We'll see if we can fly above those controversies <laughs> and solve some issues uh, broadly in the public interest. In any event, thank you both very, very much. It's a great Thank you, David. It was a pleasure. Great conversation. Thanks. Take care.